Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, In Sickness and in Health, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in February 2019. After you listen to the stories, stick around to listen to our special guest, Brett Nichols, speak with me about the theme for our next show. In our first story, Steve Ford tries to reconcile his fear of doctors, given the new diagnosis that explains his many years of pain. All right, so when I was in about the third grade, I started to get this kind of a pain in my side. Nothing terrible, like kind of like a headache, I guess. I mean, it wasn't bad enough that it stopped me from doing anything, and it didn't like hinder my ability to go throughout my daily life. Um, I don't know. And, and I was the kind of kid that they had to drag into and out of every doctor's office ever, especially if there's a needle involved. So I really wasn't motivated to do anything about it. And if I laid down on a heating pad, it would go away. So I just figured it was part of being a heavier kid, and I just dealt with it. And I continued to deal with it all the way through middle school and high school and college. And it just was the thing that I just lived with. Um, in that time, the pain would come in longer and stronger bursts. And as is the case with fear, I kind of, I was, I was afraid of the doctor and I was worried that there was something wrong with me. And that if I had to go to the doctor about it, they would have to have surgery and fix it. So it, it's kind of like, I guess, putting off exercise. Like, I know it's going to feel better in the long run, but I'm going to have pain now. And it's really easy to rationalize the pain now because it's comfortable here. So it wasn't until about February of 2005 that it stopped being comfortable here. And the pain in my side went from being this kind of a, a headache that it was annoying to like full-on migraine that I was dealing with. And I was laying on the couch. Nothing helped. I stopped working out, that didn't work. Even my heating pad didn't help. And I was starting to miss social obligations because I was laid up and I was feeling bad. So I decided, okay, now's the time I finally have to deal with this pain in my side. So I was a grown man. I had my parents' HMO card. <laughs> so I decided it was time to do the right thing. I went to the Mount Pleasant Urgent Care. And I was pretty nervous that I was going to have to get a shot or something. And you know how doctors are. They want to hurt you and make you feel better. <laughs> so I only had to get an x-ray that day, thankfully. Um, and the x-ray, I can do an x-ray, no big deal. But the x-ray had a little spot on it on my right side. So I had to get a CAT scan. Now, this was 2005. A CAT scan was a little more of a big deal than it is now. I had to fast for 12 hours. I had to get an IV, which I had never had before. And being scared of needles was terrible. And then they, they hooked the IV up to this medieval-looking machine, and they put a 10-ounce bottle in there, and they shotgun this thing full of contrast solution into my veins all in, like, three seconds. And the CAT scan kind of identifies my kidneys as the target, so I had to go get another scan called an IVP. And this one required 24 hours of fasting and another IV. And finally, after all that, I was starting to get used to this stuff, but it was actually kind of cool to see my kidneys all lit up on the screen. I was like, hey, this is nice. I was terrified to see that the kidney on the right was twice the size of the kidney on the left, and they were conjoined together into one big mass. 
So I have what's called a horseshoe kidney, I learned in that moment. A horseshoe kidney is a pretty benign thing where your two kidneys are just kind of connected together by a little isthmus of kidney flesh, and it's usually not a big deal. I have a kind of a special horseshoe kidney where like stone and crystalline matter doesn't drain out like it's supposed to. It just kind of sinks to the bottom. So on top of my two kidneys where one is larger than the other, I also had three rocks sitting inside of them. The smallest was five millimeters. The middle one was seven millimeters. And the big daddy was 2.6 centimeters thick. <laughs> now, as you consider the diameter of your urethra in metric, Allow me to assure you, I never had to pass any of those bad boys. That's physically impossible. <laughs> and, and I did learn later on that my delaying this appointment had nothing to do with the actual diagnosis. This would have happened no matter what. But it was kind of like Pandora's box. Once the doctors knew about the stones, once, once I had shown my body to the doctors, they're not going to leave until the stones were dealt with. So it was finally time for me to embark on this series of surgeries that I had to do to get myself fixed. So the first thing they attempted was um, a thing called uh, ureteroscopy, where they go in with a laser and they chip away at the stones. It's very futuristic and cool. They chip away at the stones and they collect the matter and they draw, they draw them out of there. So, um, so for a kid that hated the doctor and hated needles, I was, felt like I was starting to get pretty used to this. I felt like kind of a badass. I was like, okay, I got this. I had to get an IV, um, but this time I had to get like general anesthesia, which is terrifying, especially if you've never had general anesthesia before. Like, I'm going to go to sleep and what if I don't wake up? So, but, so, but all, I have, all I have to do is show up and go to sleep. No big problem. Okay, that's fine. I was, however, an inattentive 20-year-old, um, and I missed the part where they were going to do all this through my urethra. <laughs> Something about being hooked up to a heart monitor um, takes away your ability to have a poker face about how comfortable you are with things. <laughs> they're describing how they're going to go invade through my junk, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, that's fine, I'm cool with this, and the heart monitor is going 180 beats per minute, like, <laughs> okay, but, but, hey, I was there, I was buckled in, I was on the roller coaster, I was over the hill anyway, I'm in for the ride, I was asleep, okay, so, uh, there's no sleep like anesthesia sleep, man, it's so comfortable, and you wake up, and they have that big toasty blanket on, and you're so comfortable, and I was like, this is over, the pain is gone, finally, and, you know, doctors are wonderful people, but they can be such killjoys, so he informed me the stones were too large for the laser. I probably could have told him that. Um, but they, he said, okay, so you have to have a more invasive surgery. We're going to cut you open and actually take the stones out through your back. And then the, the pain was still there, too. So now, I'm, and, so now I'm there, and my pain hurts. And then I look down, and I see this string. <laughs> so the, the string is attached to a stent. And a stent is a little plastic tube that they had up there in my ureter to help it open up and heal. And that has to come out later. So it's attached to a string, and the string is just there. And there's no real pain nerves in there, so you don't really feel anything, but the, I mean, there's a little knot at the end of the string. So anytime I was standing up or sitting down or walking anywhere, I could feel that little thing sliding. Yeah. But okay, so now I was at my complete limit, though. Like, I, I, I had put up with IVs and, and fasting and laxatives and all this stuff, and finally, finally, I was going to get this taken care of. So. Three weeks later, I went into the Midland Community Hospital to have the big operation. And this is a big deal. Cutting in your kidneys is not ideal at all. Uh, I had to be there for at least three days because they're going to come take the stones out and then they have to monitor me to make sure I'm healing up okay. 
But I was a, I was a hospital warrior by now. IV check, no problem. Uh, naked in front of strangers, pff, easy. <laughs> Relaxing anesthesia, gave me the drugs, you know. But right before I go in, he comes in, he's like, all right, let me see the string. <laughs> so, this juvenile delight on my face, I pull up by my blanket, here you go. And he just grabs that string and starts yanking and yanking and yanking and yanking. <laughs> and this stent bursts forth from my urethra, all covered in bodily juices. And then I went to sleep. And that was the last thing I remember. So, <laughs> the recovery from this is what I usually describe as the worst week of my life. The stones were removed and I woke up in like the kind of pain from you just got cut open pain. Not, not anything like this ache that I've been dealing with for 20 years, but like you just had surgery pain. I, I could barely stand up. Walking was a chore. Showering was impossible. And they gave me morphine, which is okay. And they gave me TV, which is better with morphine. <laughs> but I was just chained to this bed in, in, in agony now. Instead of this rolling ache I've been dealing with, I had this sharp pain anytime I went to do anything. And I was starting to smell, everything was smelling like plastic and body odor and death. And I had this, I had this, this poor roommate I had. You know, I was alone most of the time there. And he was 80 years old and he had some terrible gastrointestinal disease. And he was like, I think probably slowly dying the whole time I was there. And it was just, there was nothing for me to do. I was just there. I had optimistically packed all my college books. Like I was going to get some studying done. <laughs> a, a cartoonish fantasy I now realize. And I had another stent in through my back too. So I was really pinned to this bed. And it was to help everything drain. But I wasn't draining well enough, I guess. So my three-day stay turned into a six-day stay pretty quick. It was, to be sure, miserable. But somewhere, I think the, the, the searing pain of my surgery plus the anxiety of I need to get back to class to pass my exams started to mix together. I, I hit my limit about on the sixth day. I finally cussed out some poor nurse. When the fuck am I going to get out of here? And I don't know if that worked, but the doctor showed up two hours later, so maybe, maybe, maybe that's okay. Anyway, my, I was draining fine, so I was clear to go. And it wasn't until I was about in the parking lot with my parents, and I realized something that hadn't, maybe the whole week of misery had really covered up, but that pain that I had just dealt with, that had been like kind of just aching in my back for like 20 years of my life, was completely gone. And I was like, is this how life just is for regular people? It was amazing. I mean, it was like taking off ankle weights after 20 years. I felt so strong and free. It was great. Uh, so I spent the next you know, two years in and out of hospitals and ORs, learning more about my special kidneys, checking to see if it was life-threatening or not. It's not, trust me. I went from being this kid who was scared of needles and doctors and hospitals to you know, casually laying on my stomach with a tube in my back, pumping saline through, discussing the finer points of the music of Prince with the anesthesiologist who's keeping me good and healthy. And it didn't matter, because I had gone from this scared kid to being pain-free. I was, I was free. Until about last year, when the pain came back. Like an old friend. Now I'm getting out in front of this one. I just had a CAT scan last year. One seven millimeter stone, pfft, no big deal. And it hasn't grown at all in the last calendar year either, so that's a win. So. It doesn't matter, I'm pain-free, and, and hospitals and medical technology has gotten better and stronger, and so have I. This time, I know what I'm made of.
In the next story, Karen Killian wants to be a good guest in her host country, which leads her to make a regrettable choice. So I first glimpsed the village of Santo Domingo Caste from the back seat of a white Range Rover. I was 22 years old, and I had graduated from college a few months before. And at some point during my senior year of college, when I was trying to decide what I should do next with my life, I'd wandered into the career office at my university and began flipping through one of these white plastic binders. This was the sum total of the career advice and guidance available at my university was a stack of white plastic binders with some <laughs> things in folios inside. And in one of these binders, I saw a flyer for a volunteer program through the Public Information Office of the UNHCR, um, the United Nations High Commissioner of Refugees, if you don't know that acronym. And this program was recruiting volunteers to go live in a refugee camp and write about their experiences. And one of the programs they had was beginning that year in southern Mexico, um, later that fall, right after I'd graduated. And then, so I immediately thought, well, this is perfect. I like to write, and I'd been studying Central America. It didn't matter to me that I had to buy my own plane ticket or that I would not be getting paid any more than what I needed to live on during the month I would be in the camp, nor did it matter to me that there was no future job involved in this experience or I'd be returning home broke and jobless um, after I was done. I just, I wanted an adventure. Also, I had been studying Central America in school. And so I had been studying all these atrocities of history and all of the ways that the United States had intervened in Guatemala and all basically all of the ways our country had caused this brutal civil war. And it left me with this overwhelming feeling of anger and guilt. And I didn't know what to do with all this anger and guilt. And so I sat down and I wrote a really long letter because I thought I was a good writer. And I really thought that my verbosity was evidence of my good writing. And so I told them that I was you know, finishing this degree in international relations and that I was bilingual because my last two years in school, I had taken all my classes in Spanish. And though I really learned all my Spanish from the guys at the valet parker the valet parking guys at the restaurant where I worked in order to pay my way through school. They were like my tutors. Um, <laughs> learned way more from those guys than the guys I, anyways at school. But anyways, I, I, so I wrote this really, really long letter and that I was really interested in immigration and, and, and migrant issues. And I had been studying Central America. But I also made sure to mention that I was absolutely determined at this point in my life, at 21, 22, to, you know, choose a path that allowed me to be the change I wanted to see in the world. Because that was just so important. And hey, what better way for a blonde 22-year-old American to make a difference in the world than to go live in a refugee camp, right? Because surely 22-year-old me was going to be able to go live in this refugee camp and have an impact on the lives of these thousands of refugees that had already been living in this village for three, nearly two decades. And so if I go there for two months, I'm going to change their lives, right? Okay. So I flew to Mexico City, and I meet all my cohort. There's 12 of us volunteers from all over the, the world. 
We have a brief meeting with an administrator in the UNHCR office in Mexico City where we're told that we should never, under any circumstances, purport to be employees of the UN. That was the only message that they gave us. They gave us no guidance. They didn't tell us anything that we should do in this refugee camp, just that we were not employees of the UN and we were not allowed to pretend we were employees. Then we were sent to a grocery store and very to pick up some provisions and very quickly put on a 22-hour overnight bus to Camp Peche. Um, once we get to Campeche, we check into this little hotel called the Hotel Americas, and then we spend three days sitting on crates on the floor of a tiny office getting briefed on the history of the Guatemalan refugee situation in Mexico. Or rather, we got briefed on one version, the public version, of the history of the Guatemalans in Mexico. Then we were divided up into groups and told which of the six camps we would be living in for the next few months. I was paired with a Venezuelan law student named Juan and sent to live in Caste. Now, this village of Santo Domingo Caste is located about an hour from Campeche, um, or at least it's one hour south of Campeche if you're riding in that white Range Rover. If you go there on public transportation, it's two hours or three hours or four hours, depending on how you try to get there. And, um, but it's just this tiny little village plopped down in the middle of nowhere. Caste was the last of the six refugee settlements that the um, Mexican government and the UNHCR formed in the states of Campeche and Quintana Roo in the 80s on a piece of land bought by a farmer just in the middle of nowhere in this space in southern Mexico. But when Caste was designed, it was the last of the refugee camps so that they tried to, re to rectify all of the problems that they'd had in the previous camps. And the residents of Caste were the ones that wanted to keep moving because they wanted something better. So it had become the most economically sustainable camp and they thought it was the one where it was the most utopian image of what could happen. Every resident of Caste was given a poured concrete pad to build their house on. So even though their houses mostly consisted of sticks, they had this po poured concrete pad and they had a tin roof that was gifted to them. And then they also had access to electricity and running water. This is kind of pretty great things. Tin roof, concrete pad, electricity, running water, four basics of the developing world, right, that you don't always get. Um, and like I said, there was a very particular narrative about these camps, and it was one that was very strategically spun. At this point in time, in 1997, when I moved to Caste, the Guatemalans who had chosen not to repatriate were being given the right by the Mexican government to become Mexican citizens. And this was the perfect happy ending to the migrant story, if we consider our modern day, like this is a pretty amazing thing, right? The Mexican government had decided that these 25,000 Guatemalans that were left in Mexico, they'd all become Mexican citizens. It's a fabulous situation. So I was filled with all this 22-year-old hope about how we were going to help facilitate this happy ending when I got my first glimpse of the village. The dirt streets of Caste are some of the straightest streets I've ever seen. You can really picture engineers walking around with machetes in this jungle land and just making these absolutely straight lines and just pouring all these concrete things. This was a planned, planned community. And in the middle of the square of concrete streets, there's this big square overgrown um, with grass that kind of comes up to your knees because until a volunteer goes out and chops it down, there's nobody to cut it down. And at the edge of the square, there's a church and then there's this one squat concrete block building with a tin roof, the only one of the few concrete block buildings in the community, um, which uh, had stenciled letters on the outside called Casa de Comar. And our, my white Range Rover, my chauffeur, drove me up, dropped us off in front of this concrete block building. The chauffeur said, hey, we'll see you later. Have a good time. Have fun. And they took off. That was it. 
So we go inside this concrete block building, and there's about six rooms, right? And they're just all concrete block. You have a tin roof. You've got a little space. And on the side, there's a few little rooms. There's one with a propane stove. There's one with some concrete benches. There's a tiny little table. There's a room that some people are obviously occupying. There's a front foyer where the engineers, the Komar engineers, will park their um, motorcycles. And then there was an empty room um, next to the bathroom where we were able to set up our hammocks and get set up, my, me and my, my friend Juan, the Venezuelan law student. And then there was a bathroom. Now, this bathroom had a toilet in the ground in this concrete room. And it had an attempt at a shower head, kind of dangling from the wall. And it had an attempt at a sink, but it had no running water. So it turned out, I found out later, that I would be sharing this space with a revolving door of six or eight different Mexican engineers and Juan, my Venezuelan law student, and no running water on one toilet. Um, the only way you could get the water to flush the toilet was to go outside with a bucket and walk 25 feet behind the building and get the bucket. So I keep going, and I am still determined to do everything I can to make a difference, but I have no work plan, no assignment, and like months laying in front of me in this concrete black building and no idea what I'm going to do with this time. Um, the next day we get up and Juan and I start wandering up and down the streets trying to say hi to people, get to know the people in the village. And you could tell that the refugees, they've been through this before. We were not the first foreigners to come and smile at them and try to like make friends. The children, on, however, were very excited to meet us especially when they figured out, because they had played this game before, that I had a backpack full of stickers and balloons and UNO cards and a soccer ball and all of the other things. And of course, I had this yellow hair. I mean, it was like I was a pink unicorn with a fluffy purple tail. I mean, they were very excited to come hang out with me. And they were knocking at our door all the time, which totally annoyed Juan. But I was doing my best to make a difference. And so I was playing with these children 12 hours a day those first three days. And then at the end of the third day, I hear a knock at night, just as I make my cup of tea, and I'm starting to get ready to go to sleep. And I hear this little timid knock at the door. Knock, knock, knock. And I hear this little timid voice going, Senorita, ingeniera. When you're a college-educated person in the campo, you're always an engineer. It doesn't matter what you do. Everybody calls you an engineer. Um, and I was, there was one of the little girls I'd been playing with all day, and she had this big cloth bag for me, and she, it was full of corn. And it was still in the husks, and it was kind of dry, but it was corn. And I thought, wow, I've made a breakthrough. This kid really wants, you know, she's like, my mom sent it to me. It's a thank you. And I was absolutely determined to use this corn, right? And Juan just looks at me and he's like, you know, you can't eat that. And I was like, well, of course I'm going to eat it, right? And then you have to remember, Juan is an upper class, I didn't quite say that, Venezuelan law student. So he's like, he had gone to preschool in Miami when his mom was jetting back and forth for, you know, his, like, on, for her master's degree or something. And I was a working class kid from Minnesota, so we... Though he was the Latin American guy and I was the gringo woman, we had this like cultural shift that was a little bit difficult to, to divide. And so I was like, well, screw you, I'm gonna eat the corn. And I boil it up, I'm like proving everybody wrong, and I put some salt on it and I eat it and it tastes like sawdust with a little bit of a crunch. And I'm absolutely determined to eat it and I go to bed in my hammock, laying in this little room, and I wake up in the middle of the night, sick as can be. Of course I do, right? And I, the only thing I can do is go sit on this waterless toilet, 
with six guys sleeping within 10 feet of me. And I spend all night on this toilet dreaming of a bread and a pillow and trying to muster the energy to go outside and fill that bucket so I can flush behind myself on this waterless toilet with the 10 guys sleeping, or six guys, I guess, sleeping within you know 10 feet of me. And I finally, dawn comes, and Juan sees me, and he takes one look at me and says, we've well, got to get out of here. You've got to go to town. You've got to, you know, and I, I did not want this guy to be my savior, especially after the night before, but I was like, yeah, all I want is a bed. And so I let him, you know, help me onto a bus, and we took the two, three-hour journey into town, and I laid in a hotel, and I let him bring me Sprite, and I had pills from the pharmacy until I was feeling better. And then the next day I went to the grocery store and I filled up a cart with baby food, V8, soda crackers and packages, and powdered milk and dried coffee and sugar and tea. And that's, I decided this was all I was gonna eat for the next few months because I had no idea how else I was gonna survive. I was not going to get that sick again. So we go back to Campeche and we try to figure out things to do. We walk around, we help register kids for school. When there's a teacher's strike and the teachers can't actually show up to school because of some political upheaval, um, we actually temporarily teach the school. So I'm the PE slash English teacher for about a week. And the only thing that I can possibly do to keep these children occupied is play endless games of how do you say that in English, which was <laughs> quite entertaining. But eventually we start to find our groove and we help with some of the citizenship paperwork. And one day one of the women from the UNHCR shows up um, and she says, well, you know what? We have this cooperative of women for this microloan program and um, none of them are paying back their loans. So here's their names and I'd like to see if you can get them together and figure out what's going on. So I walk around for a couple days, I find all these women, I organize a meeting, and we have this meeting and we sit down. Turns out all these women have the money to pay back the loan under their mattresses, but they just have never in their lives, the UN wanted them to go into a bank and um, fill out a deposit slip and deposit the cash. And none of these indigenous Guatemalan women had ever used a bank. None of them had ever written a check. None of them, they just were absolutely terrified. So we navigated that. And then we decided to start having basic you know, math and accounting and business classes. And these, Juan and I are teaching these classes together. They go on for a few weeks. It seems like it's going well. The women are coming all the time with their little kids. We're having these awesome classes. I feel like we've got this awesome rapport. And then one day at the end of class, Juan says to the women, without saying anything to me before, uh, next time you need to not bring your kids. It's unprofessional. We cannot have this class with these children in this room. And I tried to intervene and I tried to say anything, but these women just got up silently. They looked at this six foot two Venezuelan guy with his wavy hair and they just said, okay, whatever, I'm scared, I'm leaving. And I was so angry, we ended up having this blowout fight later that night. Um, remember, he went to preschool in Miami, so he spoke better English than I spoke Spanish. So we screamed at each other all night in English, and he told me that I was this stupid American woman and I didn't understand how the world worked, and I told him he was a machista Latin American guy and he was kind of a dick, and then he packed up a bag and he decided he was gonna go to Chiapas and be a tourist for the rest of the time we were supposed to be in Mexico. He was gonna go explore Palenque and all these other places and meet the Zapatistas or whatever the hell he wanted to do. And I was left there by myself. 
the next women of the class, nobody shows up, and I'm kind of projectless, don't know what to do. And then I wake up one day, and everything in the room is shifting. I'm drenched in sweat. I am all alone. All of even my engineer Mexican guy friends are gone. I'm all alone in this echoey concrete building, and I have a fever like I've never experienced in my life. And in that fever, every my body aches, my head aches, and I'm in this hammock, right? I can't even get my foot on the ground to step down onto the ground because I'm just so feverish. And I don't know how long I lay there, but eventually dawn comes and I'm like, okay, I have to go see the doctor at the clinic in town. I know I'm very, very sick. And I finally get myself up and I slowly you know, walk the quarter mile to the doctor. And it must have been earlier than I thought because there's a long line of women waiting outside the doctor's office with their children. They all just look at me, this like gringa kid standing there and they're just like, oh my God, she's really sick. I couldn't even stand in the line. I had to like sit down and hold my hand between my, my knees and I just didn't know what to do. And they're all staring at me and I can tell they're talking about me. And I know that there's something really wrong with me, but I don't know what it is. And I'm just so sick, I don't even know what to do. Um, and then eventually the doctor comes and we'd met a few times before and she was very brisk and professional and sweet. And she said, okay, you need, you are, you have dengue, you're very sick. So she was telling me I had dengue fever. Um, you need these pills and you need to go to town. You need to get out of here and you need to go to the hospital. And um, so go back to your house, take some water and, you know, pack a bag and we're going to get you out of here. And so I tried to do what she said. I have no idea how long it took me to try to make my way back the quarter mile to the little house. But eventually, I remember laying in the grass and looking up the sky, and everything was just wavering around me. And suddenly, the white Range Rover appears. And it's just like this godly white beast of a machine to pack me up and take me to town and pack me back into this Hotel America and take me to a doctor until I got better. Now, I've told this story over and over again for the last 20 years of my life. The time I worked in the refugee camp and I got dengue fever. And people like myself, North Americans, will say, oh my god, that's crazy. You had dengue fever and you were living in a refugee camp. What people don't understand is that 90% of the population of that community had dengue fever at that time. It wasn't really that big of a deal. I wasn't really that special. I got boosted to the front of the line specifically because of who I was. Um, and also, realized there were things that I didn't know about this community when I lived in it. First of all, 25,000 Guatemalans were helped by the UNHCR during this time period. Do you know how many Guatemalans left Guatemala during the Guatemalan Civil War? The UN admits in public white papers now one million Guatemalans left Guatemala and didn't go back. So where do they live? Most of them live in the US and have lived here since 1982, more or less. And um, many of them stayed in Mexico. So what is the real illness here? Is it the white girl in the refugee camp with dengue fever? Because that sounds really scary to lots of us, right? Or is it something bigger? Is it something a little bit harder to put a finger on? Something that is still impacting our country today? Thank you.
Next, the concurrent illnesses suffered by Jen Loop's parents are made more complicated by their post-divorce interactions. My parents are divorced. And my parents got divorced when I was 25. Um, after I had come back from college, and I did do the classic boomerang, moving back in with my parents, my younger sister uh, was, she's six years younger than me, and she was in her senior year of high school. And there are various reasons that we can talk about for why they got divorced, but this was a major upheaval in our family. I'm the oldest. Um, I have a younger brother who's two years younger than me, and my sister is six years younger. And my parents had been married for 35 years. They had been married 10 years before they even had me as the oldest child. And I can't even really imagine what life was for them. I knew them as a couple. I knew them as a couple that didn't always get along, but it was not terrible when I was growing up. I don't have a lot of traumatic stories. I do know that, you know, something was wrong. At the point they got divorced, I feel like that was, that was the right thing that could have happened. Um, but this was 2006. And so they both still live in town. I'm from Traverse City. And they got divorced and never spoke a word to each other after that. Well, I live in Traverse. My younger sister lives in Traverse. We did this back and forth holiday thing. My brother just lives down in, Grand or in Ann Arbor. And he comes back for holidays. And then in 2014, my mom gets diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Now, it was a, it was a dramatic diagnosis. Um, she had been feeling ill for two weeks or so and went into the doctor to get some blood work done. Well, at the point that she went into the doctor, she was jaundiced, and they called her almost an hour after they got those results back, after she had left, and immediately told her to get to the emergency room. She had a large mass that was blocking the bile duct from her pancreas, and she was not digesting anything. There was emergency surgery. Um, they put a stent in. She made it through that, and then the diagnosis came that this was certainly cancer. Now, there are a lot of luck parts to this story, but one thing that happened was she was diagnosed in February of 2014. My sister was eight months pregnant with her first kid, and this was the first grandchild. And so I'll be darned, but that didn't pull my mom through absolutely all the excruci excruciating things that she would have to deal with in the following months. Um, they really wanted to shrink that tumor before she had surgery. And so she went through chemo, she went through radiation. I was the oldest and also the not pregnant one. So I was the one going to all the appointments. I would sit with her as she was getting her chemo and as she was telling me that she would rather be nauseous and sick than lose her hair. Well, she was going through this and my dad was asking questions of the kids, right? He wanted to know what was happening with her, but he didn't reach out to her. And this was all right. We were stuck in the middle anyway. We were going to give him the information he wanted because he did care. And I think, um, well, four months after her diagnosis and after all the chemo, she went down to Ann Arbor to um, have a Whipple procedure, which is a very serious surgery. They took out almost all of her pancreas, quite a few other organs. Um, and she now cannot 
actually eat without taking a special enzyme. This is something that usually, it's a very invasive surgery, um, the odds are decent but not wonderful, and, and she made it through. Well, about a month after that, she's recovering. There's a new baby around, my sister's, my sister's daughter, Elodie, and I spent a lot of time with her as she was, um, as my sister needed help, and I get a phone call from my dad. And he immediately says, I think I'm having a heart attack. I need to go to the ER. So I drive over to my dad's house, and I'm through all of this with my mom. I'm a fairly stoic person in an emergency. I'm a good person to have around, because I'm going to get done what needs to get done. I'll worry about it later. I'll process it later. And I'll have that reaction later once there isn't anything left to do. And so I got to my dad's house. And he had laid out all of his bills, probably with ruler precision, everything that he thought that we needed to go through. And he was crying. And this is the second time in my life, still the second time, that I've ever seen him cry. First time was when they got divorced. And he explained that he didn't think he was leaving the finances the way he wanted to leave them, but he was sure he was dying. He was absolutely positive, and he needed to talk to me about all these things as I drove him to the emergency room. Well, I drove him there, and in classic my dad fashion, he, he actually asked me to just drop him off. <laughs> He's like, I'll be fine. Um, no, he really thought he was dying, but he asked me to drop him off. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll check back in, I guess. And I did, um, and, and he was all right. There might have been a problem with blood pressure, but really and truly, he was feeling the effects of what was happening to my mom. He was having a panic attack. He had heard these things. He knew stuff was going on with the family. And they still didn't speak a word to each other. Now, my brother and my sister and I are pretty close. In fact, in a strange twist of fate, we all Myers-Briggs test to the same personality type. And it's like a 4% personality type. We're all INTPs. It's great. I think we all are, like in the whole family. Um, and so we process things very similarly, and we get along really well, and we really are quite close. And that has something to do with my parents, right? Um, even if things weren't perfect as we were growing up, something brought us together. And I know that there are some things in all of this story that I can be resentful for, because it's my job to take care of these things now. Well, my mom is five years out of this diagnosis after this Whipple. Yeah. She's doing great. Um, she beat every, every odd, and she's, she was last, last cleared. Um, and she still comes in and goes in for regular scans. And my dad is perfectly fine. <laughs> um, there have been a few other times where he's thought something was going on, and we're, we've been checking back in. And... I think about the vows they made, and I think about their life. I mean, the 10 years without having kids, I just can't even imagine what their life was together. And then waiting so long to have me, and then being married for 35 years. And for me, I can't fathom knowing someone that well and not still being connected to them. But that's their story, and that's still their story. They still have not spoken. And it's still me and my brother and my sister taking turns, figuring out what's going on with either of them. But you know what? Those marriage vows, that in sickness and in health, 
um, those are still being upheld through us, for better or for worse. Next up, David Fink puts his name on a silent auction item to get the bidding started. But is winning this item actually a prize? Thank you. So I'm standing right above the patient's head. The patient is right there. I, I'm, I, could, I could lean down and touch him. I'm standing next to two anesthesiologists as I watch the surgeon take a scalpel and slice down the patient's torso and then take a, a little saw and uh, cut him and open him up and um, then take, a, um, take ice to stop his heart. You'd think there'd be something more technological, but no, it's just ice. And um, there's a very strange way that I got there. I, at the time, was, uh, I worked for a metal company, and I, uh, I became president of the Chicago chapter of the recycling, metal recycling trade organization, and I'm a very nervous public speaker. And one of my friends in the industry at my first meeting that I chaired pulled me aside afterwards and said, David, you seem really nervous chairing that meeting. Maybe you should take a class or something to get more comfortable speaking in public. And I had been offered free classes at Second City, so I called up and said, is that offer still good? And they said, yes. So I signed up for class at Second City, and it did help. If you can improvise on stage in front of an audience, it's much easier to chair a meeting about something that you're somewhat familiar as opposed to just making something up. But uh, anyway, in my class at Second City, one of the guys invited me to a fundraiser. It was a fundraiser for a summer camp for Lithuanian kids. And I got this fundraiser, and I got there early, and they had a silent auction. So I don't do this anymore, but at that time, I... I uh, just was the first bidder for anything nobody bid on, just to get things started. <laughs> and at the end of the evening, yeah, you see why I don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, there's a risk. So at the end of the evening, it turns out I was the only bidder. <coughs> and I won the chance to be in an operating room and watch an open heart surgery. <laughs> for $50. Now, the problem is I'm very squeamish. I can't watch, like, horror movies. Um, I'm, really, I have a real tough time with medical stuff and blood. But I made a vow to myself. Um, in improv, you have a concept called yes and. And somebody says something to you on stage, you have to take it and go with it and add to it. And so I started doing that at Burning Man and then in life, where if somebody gives me the opportunity to do something I've never done before, I have to say yes and do it unless it's illegal, dangerous, or disgusting, then I have the option but not requirement of saying no. And I thought, well, I can make a case that open heart surgery is disgusting because it is, you know, medical stuff really is to me, but I thought, I'm, I'm going to do this. So I, uh, I flew out to uh, Philadelphia, rented a car, drove to New Jersey, and first thing in the morning, I met the head of cardiothoracic surgery. I was hoping, I told him I was hoping to see a, uh, a um, valve replacement because my mother had that in the, uh, the mid-60s, and I thought it would be really interesting to see the surgery that my mother had, but it's kind of triage, and you don't know what you're going to see till you get there because whoever, whatever patient needs it the most goes first. So the surgeon took me to his office. He showed me um, 
blockages in the patient's heart. I was going to see a quintuple bypass. Told me the patient's medical history. This was his second heart attack. He's 50 years old. Uh, he didn't change his lifestyle after his first one. He smokes. He drinks. He's obese. And this was a, a major heart attack. So I, I then went down and scrubbed in. And I had to wait until the patient was intubated before I could go into the room, the operating room. And it was taking a very long time. And um, because the patient was so obese, they were having a very tough time getting tubes down his throat. And I was panicking because not only am I squeamish, but I'm thinking, he's not even going to make it. And this is, uh, this is just terrible. But they, they ended up getting him intubated. Uh, I went in the room, and they gave me my one instruction. My only instruction was, if you faint, fall backwards, not into the patient's chest cavity. <laughs> that was my one responsibility. Yeah, it was very smart of them to tell me this. And so I'm standing next to two anesthesiologists. One of them is really just monitoring dials, and he said I could ask him questions. He was explaining stuff as, as things are going on. And the mood in the operating room was fairly light and fun and playful with music until they stopped the patient's heart and he went on a heart-lung machine. Then no jokes, no music, no nothing. It was very serious. Um, the operating room was cold, and I don't remember any smells. I think it was just antiseptic. One of the things that kind of helped me with my squeamishness, oh, and I, to prepare, I tried to watch operation shows on TV, but I couldn't. I couldn't sleep. And so I tried to envision what it was going to be, which was like blood shooting every. And the, my visions are not helping, so I just, I just did it. But it's not bloody. It's very clean. They cauterize all the time. And uh, one of the surgeons was Dr. Seinfeld. It was Jerry Seinfeld's cousin. And um, everybody really knew what they're doing. I thought, if I need open heart surgery, I would come here to this team because everybody knew their job. There was a person in the room that was a patient advocate. Her whole job was to make sure there's no impropriety. There's a nurse who I believe her whole job was to count uh, pieces of equipment to make sure nothing got left in the patient. So she's keeping inventory all the time. Everybody knew what they were doing. And um, they, you know, they do the surgery. It's, I think, about five hours. And it was fascinating. I was never bored. I was never uncomfortable. It was just so interesting to watch. And then they uh, you know, test the heart to make sure it, uh, there's no leaks. And they uh, pour warm water on it to start again. Um, it's just so simple. But um, <laughs> and uh, one of the things, I mean, there are a couple of things that made it a little easier. One of them is the paint for me. It was the patient was uh, all shaved and his skin was yellow because I guess it's an antiseptic that covered him. So it looked like he was made out of rubber. It didn't really look like a human being to me. And I think that was the thing that helped me get through it the most. Uh, but um, the part of the surgery that disturbed me the most is when they closed him up and they put a little plastic tube in to be a drain and they kind of pull him shut with wires. And I just thought, although he's a big man, he's obese, um, bodies are flimsy. And I think of myself as substantial, but you know, this is kind of easy to penetrate. and There's just not much, not much here. There's not much protection. And I felt like frail. And I also looked around the operating room, and nobody in the operating room was obese. And uh, I asked the uh, anesthesiologist, I said, this patient has a lot of fat on his heart. Is that typical? And he said, everyone's got some fat, but this is really excessive. Um, and so when I left the operating room, I went straight to the gym 
and I've been pretty good about exercising since then because I can't necessarily prevent that heart attack, but if I have it, my surgery doesn't have to be anywhere near as invasive as what this guy went through. And to this day, I'm still, you know, have a strong memory of this and I'm still working out. Thank you. In our last story, Tony Barrow and his wife navigate the complicated world of fertility testing. So early in our relationship, my wife, uh, my now wife, Leslie, let me know, uh, just as kind of a ground rules type of a thing, that uh, two things. One, she does not need another person to complete her <laughs> as, as, as a, uh, a self, uh, self-made person. And number two, she wanted more than anything and still wants to this day to be a mother. And so I was like, well, this is a really good time for me to let you know that I've had a vasectomy. Uh, <laughs> uh, I had been married before and uh, have, a, have a son. Uh, he's 15 years old now. And honestly, I didn't expect to be in another serious long-term relationship, uh, let alone having, uh, being in a position to have another child. So, uh, so, you know, as couples do, you know, we kind of tabled the discussion and had it over an extended period of time. Uh, and I guess it, it came down to an evening where uh, it, was, it was a late night trip home. Uh, we had been out on the town and we had, uh, we were talking about it and I talked about, um, I, I, I don't remember the exact frame of the conversation. I just know that I, I compared and contrasted the, uh, the cost of a vasectomy reversal and the trauma with a, with a trip to Aruba that I had had 10 years before, you know, and I was just weighing that out. And, uh, and that was an awkward rest of the ride home to her house uh, where she promptly made a beeline for the bathroom and, and broke down. I hate making anybody cry, and uh, let alone Leslie. And uh, after she let me into the bathroom and, uh, and held her, and she let, me, she let me know a couple of things that I hadn't really realized before. Number one, um, before we, we had gotten together, which was kind of a surprise for both of us, uh, she was planning on, on taking steps to become a mother. She was going to go through in vitro fertilization, and she put those plans on hold when, when things got serious between us. So all of a sudden, my perspective on, on that situation changed, and I realized uh, how flippantly I had been approaching the situation, uh, or, or at least her perspective on it. Uh, I was, and I realized that I was really kind of taking advantage of, of her love, um, I was taking for granted the fact that I was already a parent, uh, and, I, and, and I had that experience. And I didn't really realize how deeply and passionately sh- this, this was for her. This, this meant something. Um, and that was really a, one of the only big fights we've ever had. We actually have a pretty healthy relationship. We, we talk things out, and, and we're very communicative. Um, and so we got through it. We forged ahead. Uh, we, we planned our wedding. Um, we were actually, the, the wedding hall was actually paid for by, before there was a formal engagement. Um, and uh, let's see. Uh, so yeah, so we, would, we had asked our friends and family as a wedding present to, to contribute to a vasectomy reversal. <laughs> <laughs> I know. 
it's weird, but I mean, like, we're, we're adults. I mean, we had really everything that we needed except this. And it's like, <laughs> they played along. What can I say? I don't know. Um, so, so we decided uh, that we were, we were going to try to do this is the path that we were going to go. Um, and so, so I, we're, we go down to Grand Rapids to the fertility specialist for the vasectomy reversal. Uh, after the counseling about, you know, well, it's been such a period of time from when you had it, had the vasectomy, you know, your body reacts to that and stops producing the guys, but let's try, right? Um, and what started out just kind of feeling like a normal medical appointment um, just really got weird, you know, because the night before, I mean, it's weird, but, uh, but the night before you have to pr prepare your area for the incision, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm cleaning things up down there and I decide, you know, trim the hedges, you know, just kind of <laughs> keep, up, keep up appearances, right? Keep things under control. Um, so, so we're in this medical facility. She's getting eggs, or uh, she's having some tests done. I forget exactly what it was. Uh, but I'm down there, uh, and I'm on the, the operating table. I'm not really scared because I've had a vasectomy, so I've been in this, a similar situation before. I think I know what I'm, I'm there to expect. Uh, and it became weird when the urologist, you know, just very conversationally asks, you know, do I regularly keep things, you know? groomed, you know? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> and, you know, and he's talking on my spermatic cord, you know? So I'm feeling, the, you know, these, all these sensations, and he's asking about, like, the, the cosmetics, you know? Uh, so anyway, so th with that awkwardness out of the way, the procedure went just fine, you know, but the pain afterwards was not something that I had predicted. I was, I was expecting, you know, the bag of peas, you know, that, and, you know, weekend on the couch, just like before, right? We're out of the, we're out of the medical facility about 10 minutes when all of a sudden, you know, that, that, you know, hard to ignore dull ache in the nether regions t feels like my testicles are being pulled out the, the, underneath my body, and we still have 10 minutes to go to the pharmacy. And so I'm like, can you drive fast? I mean, I'm squirming, I'm squirming. It's really, really, it, it was painful. Uh, and it's, thank God, knock on wood, the worst pain I've ever had to experience so far. Uh, so we get the prescription. The pain is still is managed, but, and I'm, we're making our way back to Interlochen from Grand Rapids. It's a two and a half hour ride. And I, at one point, I remember actually crying, <laughs> just being like, oh my gosh, this hurts. That, that subsided. And so here comes the happy part. For the next six months, we're on a mission, right? We're newlyweds at this point, and we're doing the things that newlyweds do when they're trying to start their family. Uh, scheduled sex. Hey, it's actually a great thing, right? Uh, it, it included nooners. You know, we're trying to time the ovulation just right, you know? Uh, we're doing all of the things, uh, we're doing all the things right. But after a while, you know, the luster starts wearing off. You're still getting, you're getting plenty of action, so it's good, you know? So you, you can't complain about that. But, you know, when you have this in the back of your mind, what your actual goal is, and it's just not happening, and it's just not happening, and it's just not happening. And so after six months of trying, we decide we need to see a fertility specialist. So this is the time where I need to make my confession. When you, when you have a vasectomy reversal, you're supposed to have your, your semen analyzed and verified, right? 
And I never did that. And I never did that actually when the first vasectomy happened. And, and that was the point where I divulged it to Leslie. And, you know, I don't remember her being very angry with me. I, she probably called me a dumbass, you know. But, and, if she asked, and she asked me why, and I couldn't quite explain it. But I, in hindsight, I can't explain it now. It's because it's awkward. I'm supposed to deliver this to the regular old Munson lab, right? Where people are going in and getting just routine blood work. And I'm supposed to walk in with a specimen, right? And it has to be done within a certain amount of time from when the specimen leaves your body. And so the, I couldn't help but feel like as I was dropping this off, they were going to be like, oh, I know what you just did. <laughs> I, and I just, I, I wasn't comfortable to, with that, right? Um, our, uh, my hand was forced and I had to swallow my pride because the fertility specialist wouldn't even, wouldn't even meet with us unless it happened. So, uh, so I had to do that. Meanwhile, Leslie's dealing with her own bullshit. She's had painful tests, you know, with dye injected into her body to test the openness of her fallopian tubes. She's getting hormones. She's, uh, uh, she's having tests to, to try to predict how many eggs she has left in her ovaries and how much, uh, what her hormone fluctuation is when she's ovulating. And I'm learning all this stuff, and you know, it's great actually, it's reproductive education for our son. It was, it was kind of cool like that. But meanwhile, you know, there's all of this stuff, and you know, those hormone fluctuations have an effect on your body, right? So we're going through two totally separate experiences together. And, it's, and that was, that's a positive, right? So as we're deciding what steps to make based on recommendations from doctors, um, we decide we're going the biological route. And I said, no matter what happens, this is a shared marriage experience, and we're going to come out of it stronger. So now we've dealt with our own individual issues with our nether regions. Uh, we've, uh, we're moving forward with the fertility doctors. She, Leslie's back on birth control in the hopes of like, backing up the eggs, uh, stopping them, and then it was going to be followed by a hormone burst that had to be injected in the ass by me about 24 hours before we were supposed to go downstairs or go down to Grand Rapids, get the eggs harvested, as well as my specimen, right? So the next day we make this trip to Grand Rapids. Uh, they were, were going to be doing a practice impl uh, implantation on Leslie, where they're just getting the lay of the land. Uh, you know, you got to plan your attack <laughs> when it's a wise offense, right? Uh, and while that's happening, I'm, I'm giving my specimen, right? Um, so um, this was just, I mean, this just really took awkward to an entirely different level. So, so I'm already weirded about, out about it. There's a lot of anxiety. My wife is not with me. I have to go into this room and do the thing. It's the whack shack, right? <laughs> And it's it's basically what you're it's basically what you're picturing. It's <laughs> it's, it's a lazy boy. <laughs> you're asked to put a towel down before you have a seat. There is a cupboard with inspiration. 
And, and I'm looking, I open the, you know, and of course I'm trying to make light of the situation because of who I am, you know. So I'm looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, how often are these things rotated out? <laughs> I left the question unanswered and I sought inspiration on my phone, thank you, you know. Um, but it, it, was, it was really the worst masturbation experience of my entire life. <laughs> it was worse than when my dad walked in on me when I was a teenager. It was terrible because, you know, you're, you, have a, you have an orientation before you go in. They're telling you what you need to do and, you know, how to clean things before you do it, you know, and the things that you're not thinking about when you're doing this in the natural course of events, right? And so, and then they hand you your specimen cup and your plastic bag for modesty. And, and, and I can't help but think, you know, it's, I'm, it's hard to get in the mood because I know that they're on the other side. I know, you know, and again, it's that, that really horrible walk of shame. It's the worst walk of shame that's going to end up happening. And I'm sitting in this, in this lazy boy chair, you know, trying to, trying to power through this half-hearted erection that, I'm, that I feel stupid even doing, you know. It was, it was, it was horrible. It was, it was horrible, you know, but it happened. Um, and, and I remember walking out the door and dropping the paper bag on the half door ledge and like just not making any eye contact with anybody. Um, and, and so they, they, it turns out that there, there weren't enough sailors in the Navy, but there were some. <laughs> and the ones that were there were quality, right? <laughs> The hormone boost that Leslie went through only yielded three eggs. Two of them were viable, and, and one became fertilized. And they hand you a picture, and they say, here's your zygote. I named it Megatron. <laughs> because of who I am, and just because it's like, man, if somebody's going to get shit done, it's going to be fucking Megatron. So a few tense days after implement, implementation, Leslie got the phone call. From, uh, let, no, Leslie went to the doctor and got the very official doctor-prescribed pregnancy test. And so more waiting. And she gets the call at work, and I get the call at work. And um, it was just a dejected sigh, and all I could think of was, shit. We were emotionally taxed. I felt like a failure to my wife. I felt guilty for having a son without her. I felt stupid for being so full of pride, for insisting that we try to go a biological route instead of some other more realistic, more viable routes. And, but we just left all of those things unsaid because the phone conversation was not what we needed. And I remember coming home, and I remember going to her. It was the same beeline, it's the same direction in our house that she went to the bathroom, breaking down in tears, that's where she was. And all we did was just hold each other and cry. 
So this was the end of ends for us because there was no more road for us to travel in terms of a natural birth. Age aside, we knew that right from the start, we would only have one shot at IVF because, but that's not how IVF works. It takes multiple rounds and all of them cost multiple thousands of dollars. And that's what, that's what it takes. So that is our shared regret. We wish that we had never done it in hindsight. So as for our future, we don't exactly know. Uh, we know that adoption is our only path, and, uh, and I can't speak for her, uh, but making myself vulnerable in that way uh, is very scary to me. Um, but I know that it's important. Uh, and as, as much as I tell her that she is an excellent stepmother for my son, uh, she will tell you that it's not the same. Uh, she's, she's always sharing with another mother. Uh, in a shared custody situation, uh, you're the parent that doesn't, whose w input doesn't feel as, as important, doesn't carry the same importance. You don't have as much of a say in education and health issues and all kinds of stuff. So it's, it's not the same. The power paradigm is, is skewed in a weird way. When we got together, Noah was almost 10, so she's 10 years behind in terms of that bonding. And so it's, it, she will tell you that it's different and I, I can't disagree with her. But as that chapter of our life ended, we came out of it holding two things that we went into it with. We have a stronger marriage now as a result of this shared experience. And neither of us need a partner in order to complete our lives as individuals, but going through those kinds of difficult times sure makes it a little easier. Thank you. Let's talk about next month's theme, shock and awe. So as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Brett Nichols is here with us in studio. So Brett, I'd have loved to have been able to ask you if you're shocked and awed by the renovations in our studio, but you've never been here before. First time. So I am happy to tell you that you are shocked and awed. Shocked and awed <laughs> as soon as I walked in the door. <laughs> well, welcome. Thank We're you. We're happy to have you here. Um, so you are an actor and a state trooper. I am. Um, you dabbled in real estate for a while. For a little bit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it was a short flicker in my life. Yeah. And then went back to your trooper ways. Well, you were in the sheriff's department before that, right? For a short time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I've been a trooper most of my adult life. Nice. So are folks generally shocked and awed by the fact that, like, these are your two passions, like law enforcement and acting? They weren't until... I did Rocky Horror Show in 2006, mm -hmm. and that kind of woke everybody up to what I was doing. That was kind of an adventure. That was about <laughs> seven years after I got into the department. So it was the people in law enforcement who were shocked and awed, not the... initially. <laughs> initially, but uh, I had also dyed my hair platinum blonde for the show. Mm -hmm. So not only were the people inside of inside of my work uh, surprised by that, but also the people as I'm pulling them over with platinum blonde hair, and they recognized me from the show. <laughs> It made for good conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Dance for me and then I'll take my ticket. <laughs> so you played Frank and Furter a few times, right? I did three times. Yeah. yeah. Once with the Old Town Playhouse and then twice we did it independently. Okay. Um, so I, this came out in 1975 for the first time, right? Mm. Yeah. So pre people probably found it shocking back then, just this, you know, this character. Do you think that people are 
less shocked and awed by the story of Rocky Horror? I think so now. It's been it's just a cult favorite. Everybody knows the story. I think it's less shocking now. And it was actually a flop when it first came out hmm. way back when, before it was a movie. It was a, it was a show. It was a play. And it was a flop. And then it just kind of picked up momentum as time went on. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, uh, my sister, who's five years older than I am, uh, my parents took her to the play, um, I think, for like one of her first days during high school mm -hmm. and i never got to go um she got to do everything <laughs> there were so many things that you know they were like ah sandy's allowed to do that but not you um but yeah i, I so i've been familiar with the album for a very long time for much longer than i've actually been old, like old enough to get into the theater to see it it is one of my favorites why is that i'm not sure <laughs> i think it, it gives people the right to just be whoever they want to be for two hours. Uh, we get a great deal of people who show up into the audience, people you wouldn't expect, um, all kinds of walks of life. You would think with a particular show, if you're not familiar with it, look it up, the Rocky Horror Show. Um, but it, it gives people a right for two hours to walk in into an environment where there is zero judgment mm -hmm. in that environment. You can dress up however you want to dress up. You can, within certain parameters, behave however you, however you want to behave during the show. There's a lot of feedback to the show and audience participation i think it's just it's a it's a freedom it's definitely an escape mm -hmm. it's not your normal theater yeah i was actually planning on ushering the last production uh when it was at inside out mm -hmm. um but i wasn't able to and i was so disappointed because i had such great clothes for it <laughs> <laughs> i have so some you, you can borrow if you like uh we continuously talk about uh doing it again uh the, the challenge is venue um it, it takes a particular kind of venue and it's certainly flexible uh as far as venue goes we've done it in a couple different places but uh you know it takes a particular kind of venue that we like to have so mm -hmm. in, when inside out isn't isn't uh feasible anymore where we did it uh the last time mm -hmm. if a venue pops up we've got the performers ready to go yeah yeah that was a loss to the community inside out was our original venue yep. for hearsay storytelling I remember um, i did one there yeah actually we were going to talk about that uh <laughs> shortly <right>. um <laughs> So, yeah, but if you do end up um, doing this again, please, I would like to be the first to know because I have the clothes and I'm, awesome. I'm ready. And maybe we can cast about it. <laughs> yeah, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so you mentioned that you uh, told a story at Hearsay. This was years ago. I think it was actually our f very first season. I think it was. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, the story was about you uh, responding to a call when you worked for the sheriff's department correct? state police oh it was yeah, the state early police. on okay. in my career yeah okay um i just can't keep that straight apparently so bear with me <laughs> either can i <laughs> i'll just say law enforcement there it's a go. good catch-all there you go <laughs> so but uh so yes yeah, so the call involved a drunk driver and then there was also a child fatality that mm -hmm. was part of um this accident um and listening to the story um as you told it i mean you could pretty much hear the air being sucked out of the room when you got to that most vulnerable part of the story. Um, and sure. people were actually mad at me because I hadn't warned them that there was a sad story coming. Um, it, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't anticipated that it would translate to anger to me. I knew it was going to be a hard story to hear, which is why yeah. I put you last before the break because I knew everyone was going to need a drink. <laughs> so um, I learned a lot about lineups from that show. Oh, they, actually. Sure. <laughs> um, but... Um, yeah, I hadn't anticipated that people would be mad at, at either of us necessarily. So all I could tell them was that's how life works. Like mm -hmm. we often don't see the tough stuff coming. It just happens. You know? So yeah. like, what do you think it is about that story that people found shocking? I think anytime there's anything that involves children, it's shocking. 
Um, and there was a reason why I wrote that particular story and why I chose to tell that particular story. Um, it gives a little bit of insight into not necessarily, thank goodness, the everyday life of, of a law enforcement enforcement officer, but the unpredictability of, of the career. And, you know, you start your day one way and you think you have your whole day planned out and your next couple of days after that planned out and all of a sudden something takes a turn. And it affects you for the rest of your life. Um, it can happen to anybody, not, not even law enforcement, but it can happen to anybody. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it provides a certain vulnerability to people, especially when a child ends up involved in it, as it did in this case. Mm-hmm. So, and it's interesting because I think, um, you know, when you work in law enforcement, you're exposed to things like this probably more frequently than your average citizen. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, with your work in theater, you're also very heavily steeped in the, in the humanities, which is what teaches us empathy so um yeah I, I think mm-hmm. theater if i can if i can use it as a really bad comparison i think theater is kind of my escape mm-hmm. from that sometimes it, you know it, it, it just gives me a chance to think about something else every now and again and uh it's theater also provides a really tight-knit support system so if anything's going on you know i have a good close group of friends that i can go to because of the theater mm-hmm. so at some point in my writing career, I was writing for a magazine for surgeons often, and I wrote this one article about um, a thoracic surgeon who had two full-time professions. He was a thoracic surgeon, and he was an opera singer. Wow. <laughs> yeah, like full-time both. And it was the same idea where it was just to you know, lose himself in the opera and not think about... Well, I don't think he actually said cutting people open, but... <laughs> But I will be indelicate about it. (laughs) That is what he's doing. (laughs) Exactly. I just thought that was so fascinating um, to to be able to steep yourself in two such wildly different professions. They Um, truly are. They're two parallel lives, and I think that I think that helps me. Uh, I think I I think that's what I enjoy about it mm -hmm. is that I live one life during the day when I'm at work, and then I live. I'm able to do another life when I'm not at work. That's complete. Excuse me, that's completely different, and it just gives me a way to to get out for a little while. Mm-hmm. So, in life, generally speaking, what do you think is awesome? <laughs> what do I think is awesome? Yeah. Well, what I do. Shocks I, 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 what shocks? What shocks and what awes? Um, <laughs> people in general, I think, are generally awesome, and I th- I get frustrated because Facebook frustrates me, um, the news <laughs> frustrates me because you see all the horrible things about people, and you hear everybody complaining and being mean and hating on each other, and um, and but when you go outside and you walk around and you talk to people, you realize the world isn't like that. Mm-hmm. And that is shock and awe to me. Because if you get stuck in social media, you get stuck online for too long, you start feeling that way. And, uh, boy, I encourage you to just get your face <laughs> away from the screen and get outside sometimes. Except when you're listening to this podcast, which you can put on your headphones, I'm guessing, and go out and take a walk yeah. and smile at people. Perfect. I like that postscript. Yeah. <laughs> Very much. (laughs) But But in general, I think people are awesome. And in general, I still think, despite what you hear on the news, I think life is awesome. Everything that you hear on the news is magnified 10,000 times for shock and awe. Mm -hmm. And uh, the world isn't that bad. Oh, yeah. No, I will tell you. I frequently will say I miss the days when I did not know everyone's internal thoughts. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't need to know everything. Nope. But, yeah, like you said. Like if when you're face to face like that, like nobody talks like that to each other in person or if no. they do, not not one. I've never heard it. <laughs> Conflict is handled better when it's face to face when you can just talk to each other and, you know, without the filters of, of a screen and 
It's just life is better. Yeah. Life is better. <laughs> I agree. So one last question for sure. you. What is the most shocking thing you yourself have ever done that oh, is... Oh, wow. I don't know. Well, people will have headphones on, so it doesn't have to be suitable for work. <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh, but so long as it doesn't violate your personal HIPAA <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, I have quite a bit of those. Um, boy, that's a that's a jam question. What did I do? The, the most shocking and awing thing I ever did. Or just shocking. Shock us, Brett. <laughs> Shock to who? Me or to somebody else? <laughs> huh. Uh that's a good question. You know, I, I'll pe- take all of it. People who know me wouldn't be shocked by half the things that I do. Um, it's all too private. No. Well, some of it is. <laughs> some of it is. That's for a whole different podcast, I think. And, when well, hearsay un- goes blue. Under pseudonyms and everything else. Um, I don't know. You know, I think people were shocked. My wife and I, um, were, we, were, we attempted to uh, be surrogate parents for uh, a gay married couple. Uh, best friends of ours. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when people found out about that, they were a little bit shocked. Mm. Um, it didn't pan out, unfortunately. No. Uh, things it's it's a tough thing to do. Um, we tried, we didn't stop trying, um, but we went to the limit. And mm-hmm. I think, but I think when people heard that, they were shocked. Um, so we weren't shocked. It's normal. I mean, we were like, yeah, that's great. We'll mm-hmm. do this for them for sure. But I think other people were shocked by it in my family as well. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's that's what first comes to mind. That's yeah. that doesn't have to be edited for <laughs> edited for radio. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, wh- when we turn the microphones off, you can tell us the uh <laughs> oh, the boy. not suitable for podcasts. Okay. <laughs> or, or at least things. this one maybe. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Again, someday hearsay. We'll do a blue hearsay. And oh, that'd be a good time. Yeah. <laughs> that'd be a good time. Behind a screen, right? Pseudonyms, uh, whatever. So the behind the screen. <laughs> exactly. I'm in. Voice modulation. <laughs> so, well, thanks for being here. Hey, it was a blast. Anytime. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company. And another thanks to our in-studio guest, Brett Nichols. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us in March when our theme is shock and awe. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 